In this modern age, too many people have lost sight of the true meaning of Christmas. So now, in the spirit of the original tradition, American Christmas. <laughs> series and uh, we, we, the theme verse for the last two weeks uh, has been from Galatians. So Galatians chapter 4, if you get your notes out, uh, grab them. Uh, we, we are in Galatians chapter 4. This is where we've been talking about that the time of Jesus' birth was not an accident. It wasn't just a coincidence. It, Paul writes that it was at the right time came. When the right time came, God sent his son. And so we've been looking at the right time. Two weeks ago, we looked at um, the, the uh, genealogy of Jesus. Last week, we looked at Caesar Augustus. This week, I wanted, uh, that was in Luke. So we were in Luke last week. This week, we're going to go to the other biography of Jesus, which is in Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. And, and here's where we're going to begin. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So the days is the key here. Is where we're beginning. So anytime you see the words Judea, uh, this is what we know as modern-day Israel. So this is Judea. So this is where in, the, in Bethlehem, that's in Judea, uh, um, and we, you, um, we can go visit Bethlehem today. It doesn't look anything like it looked like then. Uh, I'll show you some pictures later on, but uh, Bethlehem uh, is in Judea. But here's where we're going to begin, the days of Herod the king. So Matthew makes sure that he connects the birth of Jesus to Herod the king. Now, I love this because uh, the ESV version does the best job of showing you that Herod the, the king is in lowercase because uh, he was a king by, he was a puppet king. Let's, let's dive into who he was because uh, how many of you have heard of Herod? When you hear the Christmas story, you connect Herod the king to it immediately. Most of you have seen a play on Christmas and you connect Herod to what? Anybody? Anybody? Scrooge, okay, he's, he is, he kind of is, Herod the king is kind of the Scrooge because he's the one who went and killed all the babies who were born in Bethlehem at the time that Jesus was born. So that's how we connect him immediately to the story. Uh, and, and, uh, how many have heard the story and he killed hundreds of babies uh, in Bethlehem? Okay, a uh, little problem with that idea is it wasn't hundreds. Uh, Bethlehem was a city, a village of about 500 um, at the time that Herod came and uh, sent his soldiers in to kill the babies, there might have been at most 50, more likely around 20 babies. That doesn't change the fact that it was a massacre of the innocent. Okay, so, so many times, we like to do this when we believe something. We, we like to exaggerate what we believe and make it really, like, get our arguments on our side. Like, I've never, ever, ever done that. Well, most likely you probably have. Uh, you, but but we, we get a, a, like, we want to really emphasize our, our side of the story. And that's what we've done with this story of, of the nativity, is that we've emphasized it and magnified it into hundreds of babies, when it was probably between 20 to 50 babies. That doesn't change that it was a massacre. Now, the reason why I tell you that, and I want to make sure that we're clear on why I dive into the context and give you the historical data and throw all this stuff out here, because I've watched too many young men and young ladies grow up in a church 
walk into a college classroom and the professor give us one little inkling of a doubt in our belief that the Bible is made up and it's just a little uh, fairy tale story, and immediately it tears down everything they've ever believed. And so I want to give you context. I want to give you foundation because when we study this, I want you to understand this isn't just biblical history. This is world history. And when we connect the two, then we're able to understand the Bible in greater and greater ways. So let's do that. Let's dive into this guy named Herod because we're only introduced to him at this point, And we only know him as a 70-year-old man who kills a bunch of babies. So who was Herod? To understand who Herod was, we need to actually go back before Herod was even born. Uh, and to the point, last week we were looking at the empires. We looked at the uh, Babylonian Empire. We looked at the Media Persia Empire. Then we, the Greek and the Roman Empires were the four empires that we looked at. I want to go back to the Greek Empire. This is, here's a, uh, a map of the Greek Empire. Now remember, it's Alexander the Great. You guys remember him? He conquered in 13 years. He took all this area in yellow. <laughs> wow. He, he did all this. And then many scholars and uh, the historians wonder what happened if he just got bored and he died. So he, thir after 13 years of conquering the world, he dies and his land is split up into his, all of his generals took different pieces of it. So for our point, uh, most, uh, the two major uh, kingdoms became the Ptolemy kingdom, which is down here to the south in Egypt, and the Seleucid kingdom. So the Ptolemy kingdom uh, is down here. Now, the reason why we're going to focus on these two for a minute is because right there is Judea. That's where everything that we're talking about takes place. It's also interesting because now the Ptolemy and the uh, Seleucid kingdoms, they're fighting over this area. Uh, the first one, it's kind of funny how the Ptolemy king comes into Jerusalem because Alexander the Great, he walks through uh, Israel to take over Egypt and he doesn't really spend much time other than walking through uh, he just says, this is my land now. And everybody goes, okay. And Israel's kind of left. Uh, they kind of continue their like, own government system. They don't, their, their religion's not messed with. They just keep, Alexander says, you just, as long as you don't call me, cause any issues, I'm, I'm going to leave you alone. Well, the Ptolemy king, king comes in and says, well, listen, I want, I want to take possession of this. It's going to be mine. But he does it in a very deceitful way. He comes in and says, hey, I just want to do, I want to worship at your temple. And I want to do it on the Sabbath. <laughs> he just brings the entire army with him. So there's not really any bloodshed, but he just says, this is now mine. So the Ptolemy kingdom takes over uh, Jerusalem. But in, uh, so that was in 323 and 168 BC, the Seleucid Empire comes in. So here's the Seleucid Empire. They come down, they come into uh, Judea, and they say, uh, they take over Jerusalem, but they're not as nice. They come in, they, uh, they come destroy, they, there's a battle, uh, they fight against the Ptolemies, they kick them out, and they say, now that this is ours, the temple in Jerusalem is not going to be a, uh, a temple to your God, we're going to take it over and make it to our God, Zeus. And we're going to bring in our altar, and we're going to bring in our prostitutes. You can imagine that the people in Israel were not happy about that. So, what do they do? They revolt. A man named Mattathias uh, comes in. Here's a, a famous uh, drawing of, of what he did. He came in, and Mattathias was, was an old man at the time, uh, attacked uh, a king, uh, king's guard in the, uh, in the temple and destroyed the altar. And then they and his four sons run away, and they become the Hasmian dynasty. Now, I could spend a lot of time talking about the Hasmian dynasty that rules in Jerusalem because they actually, this is when, uh, when you see anybody celebrating Hanukkah, that is what they're celebrating. This moment when Hasmian dynasty, or what many call the Maccabeans, 
come in and take, uh, take back the, uh, the temple and say, we're going to worship our God the way that he told us to worship. And you, celebrate, you see people celebrating Hanukkah. Hanukkah is not a scriptural uh, Jewish holiday. It is a freedom holiday. It's much like our July 4th. That's what they're celebrating. And so he comes in, he sets it up, he, he begins to rule. And for a good while, there's a, a lot that's positive with the, uh, the, um, the kingdom as the Hasmians rule it. Uh, first, they're, they're high priest, and then they become princes, and then they call themselves kings. And then there's a queen. She has two sons. The queen dies. I'm not going to give you names because it doesn't matter at this point. I could throw names at you and it's just going to become muddled in your mind because that's what it is in my mind. But the queen has two sons. Her two sons decide, hey, we don't want to rule together. They begin to fight each other. And as they fight each other, they both say, hey, we need to go to Rome to get some help. So both of them on their own go to Rome and Rome goes, hey, thanks. Pompey is the one who is uh, the famous general who comes in and goes, hey, I'll help you by taking over. Literally, he says, you guys are fighting. I'm going to bring the peace. Pompey rules. And then so in uh, 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 167 BC, the Maccabean rule begins. But it is in 63 BC that Rome annexes. There's not really much. There's not much of a battle. (laughs) Rome goes, yeah, you're ours. We we take control and we're going to rule. So from 67 uh, BC to uh, um, through uh, 40 BC, it is uh, ruled by Rome. And at this point, this is where we're introduced to Herod. Now, I want to back up just a little bit because during the, Maccabe- uh, the Maccabean rule, they began to take over some lands near them. And one of them being a tribe that was just south of them called the Endomeas. We know them as the Edomites. Now, the Edomites would be who you know from the Bible as the descendants of Esau. Now, this is very important. I, I have to see so you connect it all, some connect a few dots. Esau and uh, uh, Israel are twin, are born at the same time. Jacob rules is it becomes Israel. Esau is the one who becomes Edom. They are separated. Uh, Esau is cursed. Jacob is blessed. Jacob is the lineage where David comes from. Esau becomes the ones who are cursed. And in fact, uh, the Israelites are told to destroy them. They don't ever do that. Now, that becomes an issue because grandfather of Herod is one who is forcefully made to uh, convert to Judaism during the Maccabean time. So they come in, they say, hey, you uh, Edomites, you're either going to become Jews, which means men, you've got to be circumcised, or you can get out. That's your two options. Now, Herod's uh, grandfather is a pretty smart guy. He converts. And he stays around, and he uh, actually begins to make some influence and, and grow in his ability to, to make some, uh, become in government position. That in 40 BC, something happens. Herod is serving as a governor in Galilee. He's 19 years old. So this is where we get introduced to Herod in our records, and Josephus begins to tell us, he's a, a Jewish historian, tells us that he is a, uh, a governor in uh, in in uh, Galilee, which means basically he was put in a position to collect taxes, and he does a really good job of it. He begins to take take clax, uh, collect the taxes, which they had been revolting against. He convinces them by use of a sword that they should be paying their taxes, and he gets rid of the, all the uh, all the people that are causing trouble and, and robbing and all the bandits by guess what the sword. So. There he is as governor. But in 40 BC, the Parthians come in. Now, here's where you got to see a map to understand what's happening. So we remember the Roman Empire. They're only 
people that were competing with them during that time were the, Parth uh, the Parthia Empire, which is all this eastern area. Now, Parthians want Judea too. So you see where they're conflicting over? They keep fighting over this same area. In 40 BC, the Parthians come into Jerusalem. Now they, they come in and they say, hey, they, they win a, a massive battle against those that are representing Rome. They take the, the high priest, one of the Hasmian, uh, from the Hasmian dynasty, kick him out, and they bring in his nephew. Now, the Hycranus was the one who was serving as, Hycranus II was serving as high priest at this time. Jer, uh, uh, Herod is governor in Galilee. His brother, Philanus, is also another governor in the same area. Philanus and Hycranus are, uh, are brought in. Herod escapes. Now, here's what, this is just a little extra for you. Hycranus is brought in before uh, Antigonus, who is the new high priest that they're going to bring in and put in position. Parthians are using him. And Hycranus bows down before him. And <laughs> Antigonus pulls a Mike Tyson and bites his ears off. Literally. He does this to disfigure him so that he can never serve as high priest again. So it gets him out of the way. He doesn't have to kill him, but it gets him out of the way. He can't serve as high priest anymore. So this is just a little extra for you. So, there, so here the Parth Parthians invade. Herod, though, escapes via uh, Alexandria and Egypt and gets to Rome. He comes before the, Rome's, uh, the, the Senate in Rome, and he says so there's still a republic at this point, and he becomes good friends with a man named Mark Anthony. Remember him from last week. Mark Anthony is a great, uh, is a, one of the leading generals in, uh, in the uh, Roman uh, Republic, along with another man Octavian. Octavian and Mark Anthony tell the Senate, hey, we need to send Herod back to uh, Judea with an army and make him the king. That's exactly what they do. They give him an army. He goes back in 40 BC. He begins to fight the people of Israel, the Hasmeans and the people that the Parthians left in charge. He fights them, kicks them out. In 37 BC, he becomes the king of Judea. The king of the Jews. Now, he's, been, he's now ruling, the, and he's done to rule and take over Jerusalem. He has caused massive destruction. The death toll that he has up to this point is unbelievable. He, when he goes into Jerusalem, it's just basically, he says, kill anybody that's in charge. And they get rid of everybody, including Antigonus, who was the high priest. Typically, Rome did not kill. They would just capture and then put him in, in banish them or put them somewhere. Antigonus was the first one that they send back to Mark Anthony, and Mark Anthony takes his head off. Now, here's where it gets fun. So there's his rise to power. Anytime you have power, you need to keep power. And you know you're going to have conflicts in power. So who are the major conflicts in power that uh, Herod has to deal with? Guess who? The Hasmeans. See, there's a few Hasmians still left around, and because uh, he wants to get a, uh, a good foot in, he is, remember, he's Edomite. He cannot be king in Israel by, the, by those that are in Israel. They're saying, we don't like you. Get out. You're an Edomite. But so he tries to manipulate the system. He marries a Hasmian princess named Marianum. He marries her. Let me show the, uh, Go ahead and throw that. There it is. So Herod the Great comes back to, uh, to Jerusalem, and he's trying to be the king of the Jews, but he's not a Jew. So he marries a Jew, but she doesn't really want to be his wife, but she gives him two children. Here they are. So here's Miriam, who has Alexander and uh, 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 Aristobulus. Their names are terrible to pronounce. 
Um, so here they are. Uh, he's mar- he tries to marry her, but in the mix, he has already come into uh, Jerusalem, and there is his, her uncle is, was Antigonus, who he has already killed. So let's take him out. So there he is. There's the first, you're going to like this, of many exes. So before he can marry Mary Marianne, yeah, that one, Marianne, uh, I don't know, whatever. He's married to Doris, but he wants to marry her because it's a very good political move. And according to uh, Herod, she's incredibly hot. That's what he says. You can translate the Greek. It says she was really hot. It doesn't. But you'll see in a minute, he was extremely jealous of her. He believed that everybody wanted her as much as he did, and he got extremely jealous. So to get rid of, to be able to marry her, he had to get rid of Doris. So Doris is banished. And along with Antipor, who was a son, that his first son, he banishes them out of the kingdom. And then he marries Mary, Maryam. In the mix of all this, he's trying to suffice the Jews. So uh, Maryam's brother is an uh, Aristobulus, uh, his, uh, so it's Herod's brother-in-law. He installs him as the high priest, as 17-year-old boy. He begins to do the, the, uh, the first time that he leads the nation of Israel uh, in the festivals of the Jewish country. He, uh, the people love him. He is one of them. He is a Hasmian. He's a Jew. And people begin to cheer. And Josephus says they cheered in such a way that was not good because they had a king. So... What, what does Herod do? He says, you know what? We need to have a party. Let's go over to my palace that I built in Jericho. It's an amazing place. Jericho is like the resort area of Israel. He takes them over there. It's a desert high, um, oasis. He takes them over there. They're having a pool party. He has built this amazing pool. And as they're having this pool party, he sends several of his guards, guardsmen in to go to uh, hang out with, uh, a, a, what's his name? Astribulus. Yeah, that guy. I can't pronounce his name now. Now it won't work. It's a name that looks like that. Okay. He says, hey, uh, why don't you guys go hang out with him? And while you're playing some, uh, you know, uh, chicken and whatever, I want to make sure that he dies. And therefore, he dies in the pool by accident. Just happened to be told to do so. So anyways, he's dead. Now, (laughs) this is what happens. His mother-in-law, Alexandra, is not happy about this. So she says, hey, uh, she uh, claims that he has been murdered. He has to go on trial. He goes, he has to make a trip to Rome. On one of his trips to Rome, and each time he left, he would put his wife under lock and key. And when he came back one time, many believe it is this trip, he comes back and finds out that the, the rumor at Mill has that his bodyguard that was watching his wife has an affair with his wife. He loses it, and he kills the bodyguard and his wife, has them both killed. But he immediately regrets it. In fact, uh, tradition and, and even uh, some of the historical writings says that he placed her body in a vault full of honey and would go back down to where he kept her in his palace to continue their relationship. He went mad, literally lo- loses his mind. He begins to go through the palace yelling for her. He would tell his servants to go find her. And when they came back and they didn't have her, he would beat them. He had lost his mind over this woman. Now, his, his mother-in-law takes advantage of this moment and goes, you know what? Here we go. Let's go get, uh, um, she goes to the Jerusalem uh, guard and says, let's, uh, let's get rid of this guy. He's losing his mind. And they begin to go with her until he finds out. And guess what he does to her? 
She's done. We're getting a lot, a lot of X's up here, aren't we? So, uh, so he sends the two sons are sent to Rome to get their education. They come back, and in 7 BC, he gets jealous of them. And what does he do to them? Has them both strangled. And then just so that you can have a really good picture of who Herod was, in uh, five days before he died, in 4 BC, he had his other son, Antipater, killed as well. He does a lot of killing. He's trying to be a ruler of Jews, but keeps killing a bunch of them. So how does he suffice? He suffices by building them a temple. And the temple that he builds is amazing. In fact, rabbinic writings after the, his time, show that picture of the, of the temple, is uh, the, they say that if you have not seen Herod's temple, which you can't see it because it's been destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, if you have not seen it, you have not seen true beauty. That's what the rabbi said about it. It is amazing. I wish I had more time. I'd tell you how he built it and what he did. It is a wonder of the world. So he tries to get uh, convince them that he's, he's with them, he, but they never buy it. In fact, to the point, as he's ruling the Jews, as the king of the Jews, on his deathbed, he tells his sister, grab as many nobles as you can, bring them to the palace, lock them up, and on the day I die, kill them. Because I want there to be mourning in, in Israel. Because he knows if he, it's just him, the people would celebrate. But if other people died, there would be mourning. The dude is an angry, paranoid dude. So, he has to deal with the Hasmians. Another person he has to deal with, in, all, in the mix of him being leading in this time, is this lady named Liz Taylor. Uh, Cleopatra. Okay, Cleopatra is a, remember, she is from, the, from, the, uh, from Egypt. She is a Ptolemy. So she believes that the land in Judea, which her, one of her ancestors had conquered, is her, should be her land. And she gets in a relationship with Mark Anthony, who is a really powerful man in Rome. And what does she do? She tells Mark Anthony, Marky Mark, listen. <laughs> Come on, nobody Marky Mark's fans in here? Come on. Uh, <laughs> Marky Mark, I need my land back. And what does he do? He gives it to her. In fact, he gives her the best. Here's a map of what he actually gave to her. So here's all of Judea. And uh, so here is the, the wilderness area of Judea. And here's all the really nice area of Judea. And she says, I want that, 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 that. All of those spots, Mark Anthony gives to her. And, he's, and really, Herod has no way of fighting it. He's like, I'm just a king because Mark Anthony gave me the power. He's my partner in all this. And so they have a really tight ally, but Cleopatra, she has some ways of working, okay? So she takes over, uh, she begins to take over this land, including Jericho. Jericho is where King Herod had built an amazing palace. Cleopatra takes it over and says, hey, I'll let you keep using it. You just have to rent it from me. She leases Jericho, the palace he built, back to him for half of the income of all of Judea. <laughs> so how do you get rid of a woman? Who has all this power? Octavian. Octavian at the Battle of Actium. In uh, 31 BC, throw the next picture up there. Octavian fights Mark Anthony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium and wins. Before Mark Anthony can get back to Alexandria and commit suicide, Herod goes to uh, um, Octavian at the island of Rhodes and says to him, Hey, I know I was allied with Mark Anthony. 
I realized that I was with him and I was, uh, fought with him and I stood beside him and that you beat him and I don't want to be associated <laughs> anymore with him. And he says this. This is the quote that Josephus says. That he comes to uh, Octavian and says, Do not judge me by my friends, but judge me how loyal I was to my friends. That loyalty is now to you. And for some reason, Octavian buys into it. Most likely because Herod came with lots of gold and silver. And Octavian needed it to win the rest of his battles. So, here we are. Now, he's gotten rid of Cleopatra. He's gotten on the good side of Octavian. He goes back to Israel. And what does he do, or to Judea? And he says, I, I got to make sure that he understands how much I appreciate him. Because he's the one with all the power. So he builds a city called Caesarea Maritime. Here is a, here, here's what it looks like today. Um, this, this is what it looks like today. Those are the ruins, an aerial photo of the ruins. Here is an uh, artist's rendering of what it looked back at, at the time of Herod. I want to show you what he built. Just go to that one picture here. So he built a city. There was nothing here before. It was just a little tiny fishing village. On the coast of Judea, there are no harbors. Now, for, to get money and to get things to come into a country, you need a harbor. So what does Herod do? He builds an artificial uh, harbor, a man-made harbor, in the Mediterranean Sea. Now, if, I wish I could show you like, a video of what this would look like. Because he, it, is, it, is, it holds hundreds of ships in this, in this harbor. It is amazing feat what he does. And all this area around here uh, is storage for people to come in. And so what he does is he causes people to come to Judea as an economic income. And he calls this place, what does he call it? Caesarea. Julius, or not Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus. He is, and just to make sure that uh, he, everybody understands, he builds a theater and a temple. The temple is to Caesar Augustus and to the goddess of Rome, Roma, and points them both to Rome. Just to make sure everybody understands, I've got to make people happy with who I am. And he builds this amazing place. Now, just real quick, I wish I could spend more time on this. Here is the palace that Herod built as well. Because, you know, when he builds pal uh, a city, he's got to have a palace to go to. Go to the next uh, slide there. Here is the Hippodrome. This is where they did races. Also, just real quick note, he also sponsored the Olympics. Uh, he basically saved the Olympics and became the eternal president of the Olympics to this day, Herod is credited with the Olympics that we have. Anyways, that's a, another really side story. Here is the palace. I want you to see that piece right there sticking out into the Mediterranean Sea. Because here, go to the next one. See, th those, those are fishermen over there. This is a freshwater pool in the Mediterranean, which is salt water. He builds... A pool, a huge pool, at this palace. In fact, he builds 15 palaces. Every single one of them has a pool. Just in case he needs to drown somebody, I guess. I, no, <laughs> it is amazing. What he does here, in fact, uh, there are many historians who believe that this should be considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It is um, unbelievable. You can go there today. It's not too far from Tel Aviv. It is unbelievable. He does all this to suffice Caesar Augustus. Now, so we've, we've got all these pieces, and he's all about one thing. Herod the Great is all about self-preservation. 
he has learned how to self-preserve. <laughs> he's all about protecting himself and making sure people know that he's okay. He's, all, he's tra- building temples to help the Jews. He's building accessory uh, uh, maritimes to, uh, to suffice uh, Caesar Augustus. He's all about self-preservation. But there's thing, three things that happen when you're all about self-preservation. Is number one, you get defensive. You get defensive against others. This is why he builds fortresses all over uh, Israel. In fact, he, has a, he builds a escape route from Jerusalem. He builds a, a fortress called the Herodian, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Then he builds another one called Masada so that he can get back to his home country in Nemea. It's all, it's a, it's a, he literally builds a fortress, fortress after fortress just so he can escape in case somebody comes after him. Defensive. Defensive. Here's a, another thing that happens when you get uh, all about self-preservation is you get paranoia of others. When he kills his two sons, there's no evidence historically that they were actually trying to do an uprising. He's just paranoid. He just believed that they were after him. So he had him strangled. The two people that were most likely would have helped him get to be able to rule better, he kills because he's paranoid. Another thing that happens when you're self-paranoid or about all focused on self-preservation is you have the destruction of others. He kills, he kills, he kills. So when you are all about yourself, you get defensive, paranoid, and destructive. Now we can look at King Herod and go, man, what a jerk. But the truth is, many times, I have those same traits. We get very defensive about how people view us. We get very defensive and we, we want people to think that we're good and we're great and we have all th- all, everything together. And that's why we only post pictures of our house being very pretty. All put together. That's why we only post the pictures and, and share the, those moments that are those moments where we can, we're in our glory. We get very defensive. And then we get really paranoid. We think people are over in the corner and they just happen to glance our direction as they're talking. They're talking about us. We get paranoid. And then, because we're paranoid, we get destructive. We start talking about them. And we tear them down. All about preserving ourselves. Here we have this guy, and there's no better example of this in Herod than at the place called Herodium. At Herodium, he builds this amazing fortress. In fact, this fortress is, uh, this was a hill. This is an aerial photo of, of the Herodian as it looks today. It is uh, what we see looks like a nice mountain in the middle of a plain. In fact, it's a hill that Herod turned into a mountain. Uh, go to the next picture. Uh, you want to talk about defensive? These are the stones that they found, which were for his catapults. Those are massive. Uh, show another, uh, the next one. Here's what it would have looked like at the time of Herod. This is the lower Herodium. And of course, he has a pool. This pool is so large that they took boats out to that little island for little nightcaps, I guess. I don't know. Uh, he had uh, all this built for him. And then up atop is the, is the Herodium. So what you see today, uh, the flat area would have gone another 98 feet higher. Would have been and, and white like that. Go to the next picture there. This is from uh, a view from way out. I'll come back to that in a second. Look at the next picture. Here's an overview. This is how he built it. So this ring right here, this outer ring. So he, on the original hill, he builds this wall. 
and then he puts, uh, then he builds an inner, the inner ring, and he filled it all with dirt and put rooms and stuff in there. And then on the outside, added dirt to the outside. He literally took a hill that was next door, put it on top of another hill, and then built a palace on top of that. It's unbelievable what he did. Uh, here's a uh, diagram of what it looked like. He had a theater there. He had a stairway that led up. Uh, it, it's amazing. You, I, I've been here. It's unbelievable what he did here. His tomb is right here. Uh, they just found it in 2007. It's pretty amazing what he did here. He built it, and this is the only place he named after himself. He wanted people to know he had a legacy. Self-preservation. He knew he was going to be buried here. He built a tomb before he died. And here is this place called the Herodium. But what is more important about, other than what it looks like, is where it's located. But let me show you on a map where it's at. Here's Jerusalem. About uh, less than 10 miles away is Bethlehem. You can actually see Jerusalem from Bethlehem. And from Bethlehem, it's about seven miles to the Herodium. Let me show you in, uh, in Matthew's account what's taking place. Let's read it again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east. Where are they coming from? The east. The same people Herod defeated a couple years earlier, the Parthians. These are wise men from the Parthians coming to King Herod. He's already defeated them. They're coming back. And he says, they come to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? Two who is being called the king of the Jews, they ask, where's the real king of the Jews? Paranoia setting in anywhere. He says, for we saw the star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why was all Jerusalem worried? Because they know what happens when King Herod gets paranoid. People die. Continues on, it says, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem. Just, just down the road here. It says, Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel contrast the contrast is herod all about himself and here comes a little baby who's all about everyone else it's self-preservation versus others salvation continues on he says then herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared and he sent them to bethlehem saying Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may go and worship him. Paranoia. Now remember, I mean, on the map, we have uh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Herodium. From Bethlehem, you can see that this is a picture over here on this side. Right there. <laughs> This is modern-day Bethlehem. Can you see something in the background? The Herodium. From Bethlehem, you can see the Herodium. In the shadow of a mighty palace, a little baby called the King of the Jews is placed in a manger. 
From every angle you come to the Herodian, no matter how far away you are, you can see it. It would, have sh- it would have shown the white palace on top. Go to the next pictures there. Any direction. This is all around from any direction. You come to, to the Herodian. It's going to be the most dominant figure on the landscape. And then this, go to that last picture, is where we have to understand what true power is. What is true power? For unto you a child is born who is going to bring you peace. One who's going to bring you all of the things that, that Herod pretends that he's given you, but isn't. And the question is, in this season, right now, my question to you is, who's the king of your life? See, Herod created himself his own mountain. Many times we do this in this season right now. We build our own mountains. And they consume us. I've, I've got to get the right Christmas present. I've got, to, I've got to show people how I've got it all put together. And I, I've, got to, I've got to show people that this is... I, I, and who are, who are we worshiping? We're worshiping the king we built. The mountain we've created. If I don't do this, then my relationship will be broken. If I don't do this, my job will be in jeopardy. If I don't do this, then uh, we create our own worry. We manufacture our own anxiety. We create all this on our own. And then we wonder why... We feel the darkness surrounding us in the season that's supposed to be about celebration. My question to you is, do you really treat the king in the manger as the king of your life? Or do you let the mountains that we built be our king?